Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to talk about the gathering of God's people. The gathering of God's people. So Nehemiah is this account of Israel who's returned from exile. And they've returned and they've rebuilt the temple. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah gets there and he sees that the wall has not been rebuilt. The wall is broken down and the condition of really the city and everything is in distress. And Nehemiah rallies the people and in 52 days they build the entire wall. They rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And now they've got the wall rebuilt and the only thing that they don't have are the gates. When we get to chapter 8, and we see that after the rebuilding of the wall, there is a celebration. And at the end of verse 9, look with, look with me at the end of verse 9, the very last section. It says, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So they had done this work, they'd come together and done this work, and then they went back to their cities. And now it is the seventh month. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar corresponds to like our September, October. It's the fall of the year. In fact, it is the Jewish New Year. So let's read chapter 8. I'm going to read the chapter and you follow with me. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding, that means men, women, and children, on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Ura, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand Pediah, Mishael, Malkadah, Hashmam, Hashaban, Zechariah, and Meshelam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while, the lifting, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodaha, Messiah, Kelata, Azariah, Joshabad, Hanan, Pelahiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, 
And the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which is the which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches and of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or on the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So let's go through this chapter and let's break down these verses and look at what is being presented to us here. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open this word to us. Lord, help us to be a people just like Israel was that day, attentive to the reading of your word, attentive to the instruction of your word. Lord, let this Good word be good seed planted in the good soil of our hearts. Father, that it would bring forth a harvest, a righteous harvest of righteous fruit for the glory of God, for the glory of your kingdom, for the glory of your church, that you would be known, that you would be glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we see in verse 1 and 2 that the people gather for the reading of the law. The people gather together on the first day of the seventh month. And this is, the, it, this is called by the Jews the head of the year. So this was their new year. Just like our new year is January 1st, their new year was the first day of the seventh month. It was a month called Tishri. And in that month was not only the Jewish New Year, which is called the Feast of Trumpets, but there was also the Feast of Tabernacle and the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Booths, and this is what we see in this chapter when it says they went out and they gathered branches and vegetation and they built booths and they dwelt in them. But here in the first chapter it says 
in, in the first verses, it says that they gathered together and it was the first day of the seventh month. And this is the Jewish New Year. And the book of the law is brought out by Ezra the priest to be read and to be taught. You notice that he didn't just read, but it says that they read and they explained the meaning. They gave the sense of what the law was saying so that the people not only heard, but they also understood what was being said. And this was presented out in the open in this square of the water gate, this big, huge open area. And it was presented to men, to women, and to children, to all that could understand. In other words, to all that had the faculties to understand. And so this is one reason that we have our children in here. Because our children have the faculty to understand. This is one reason we've spent two years going through a catechism question during our services. This is not just for the adults. This is also for your children. Your children can't read the Bible because they're too young to read. But guess what? They can hear. They can hear in the Word of God and those, those truths go into their ears and into their hearts. You say, but my kids don't pay attention to what's being said. Your kids are taking in more than you ever could realize. And just like we are all exposed to things all day long and we don't think we're paying attention, we don't think we're listening, but we find ourselves being influenced by the very things we hear and the very things we see, this is exactly what God instructed Israel to do, to fill your house with Scripture, to talk about it, to meditate on it, to keep these feasts, to do this year in and year out, to do this day in and day out so that this becomes the tone. This becomes the theme of your life. And as you and your children live their lives, this begins to permeate and become part of you. So it was read before the men, the women, and the children. This is in keeping with the command that Moses gave the people recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13, when Moses commands the reading of the law at the end of every seventh year. So this was not just the seventh month, but obviously this was a, a seventh year, a sabbatical year. And Moses commanded that at the end of the seventh year, they were to read the law publicly before the gathering of the people at the appointed time. And the priests were to read the law to all the people, to the men, to the women, and to the children. That's what God instructed Moses there in Deuteronomy chapter 31, that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord and observe to do all the words of the law. That's what God told Moses. He said, do this so that they will hear and learn and fear the law, the, 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 the Lord, and observe to do the words of the law. And we see in verse 3 through 5 that Ezra reads from the law in the open before all the people. He read it in this open square to all the people from morning until midday. Now that's not from 10.30 to 12. <laughs> that's like early. It, it could be as early as 6 o'clock in the morning. In fact, it, it was early. 
And they stood at the reading of the law. And they stood in the square as Ezra and the other priests read the book of the law. And we have sometimes a hard time enduring a sermon for an hour and a half or a church service for an hour and a half. And we shouldn't belabor and go as long as we can just to, to see how tough you are. That's not the point. But what we see here is that the people of God... Now remember, who is this? These people just came back from 70 years of captivity. They've been in exile. There's people here that have never even seen Jerusalem. They've never even been in the land. But they've heard of the land and they've heard of Jerusalem. They've never seen the temple, but they've heard of the temple. They never saw the glory of the former temple, but now they've come back and they've rebuilt a second temple. And there was a love for God. There was a, there was a desire. There was an attentiveness in the people because they were hungry and thirsty for what they had been denied for 70 years. And now they were back. And they were being reestablished in the land. And there was something God was doing. And God was fulfilling exactly what he told them in Jeremiah 29. When he says, when you come back from captivity, I'll visit you. When that 70 years is completed, I will visit you. And remember Jeremiah 29, 11, you might have it on your refrigerator. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope, a good future and a good hope. Verse 13 says, and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek after me with all of your heart. When was that going to happen? That was going to happen and God was going to visit them and God was going to respond to them after their captivity. And so God is fulfilling his word. What he promised them before the 70 years, he's doing right now. He kept them Throughout the captivity, he kept them in the exile. He brought them back into the land, and now he's put a desire in their heart to seek him. And this is what they're doing. <clears throat> so here's Ezra standing up on this large platform. Now, it wasn't just a platform. It wasn't, he wasn't standing on a pile of, of um, um, what do you call those things? Pallets. He wasn't standing on a pile of pallets. He was on a platform big enough for all of these men to flank him on either side. And if, if you look in, in history and you see the history of the Jewish nation, and you see this is even reflected, this is, this is why churches have pulpits. Now, we don't have a pulpit. I have a platform here, but it serves the same purpose. I remember when Andrea and I went to, uh, we were blessed, someone blessed us with airline tickets, and we went to upstate New York for our 20th wedding anniversary and we flew into Albany, New York and rented a car and we drove uh, into Vermont and we didn't know where we were going. We just started driving and, and we ended up in, I don't even remember the town in Vermont where we were, but we ended up in, in, at this church, this little white frame church and it was the oldest church in Vermont. It was pretty old, a lot older than our churches here. And I remember we walked into that church, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't much bigger than this. It was longer than this, 
it wasn't probably this wide, and they didn't have pews, they had boxes. So you had an aisle down the middle, and you had these boxes with seats, and it's where families would sit. And, and, and so they had these series of boxes with the door where you'd go in, and then the family would all sit together in this little box. But then the pulpit, I remember the pulpit was, it was massive. It, it wasn't just a pulpit. It, was, it literally looked like the, the bow of a ship. And it was, I mean, the, the preacher was way up there. It was this huge, gigantic, ornate thing. And I thought, wow, that's almost overwhelming. I mean, you walk in and just like, it overwhelms you. But it was designed to do that. This, this is what, this is similar to what Ezra's on here. Ezra's on this huge, gigantic platform that was built specifically to look like a throne or a, and he was standing above the people so that when he read the word of God, the people would be able to hear. He was the priest. And so sometimes you hear that, uh, you know, the whole thing of, pulpits and standing above the people and preaching to the people came from the Catholic Church. No, it didn't come from the Catholic Church. This is what God had ordained. This is what God put in the temple. There was even a place in the temple when, where the king would come and he would, would be able to, and many believe this is exactly where Ezra was, that they had built that back into the temple that was in the first temple. And so this is where uh, we, we see also from the synagogues, the synagogue system began with the Jews while they were in exile in Babylon. And you see this built into the synagogues, the very same thing where the priest is there and he is preaching, reading the law. And there is this explanation so that the people will be able to understand. So we see Ezra on this large platform in this gigantic pulpit above the people and he begins to read and there begins to be this reading and this teaching of the word. And it says that as Ezra began to read, as he got ready to read, verse 6, it says, Ezra blessed the Lord. He blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And we know exactly how Ezra blessed the Lord. It is the custom with the Jews in their synagogues for the reader, after he has opened the book and looked out the place he reads, to say this blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who hath chosen us out of all people and hath given us his law. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who hast given us the law. And all the people answer, Amen. Amen. That's exactly what Ezra said. Ezra, bless the great God, the King of the world, who has chosen us out of all the people and given us His law. And he blessed the Lord, and the response of the people was, Amen. Amen. So be it. So be it. And it says that they responded while, by lifting their hands. This is a gesture of prayer and a gesture of worship. It says, they answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Amen, Amen. When Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I will therefore 
will that I will therefore that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This is what Paul is referring to, this custom of, this tradition of the Jews in response. This is how they prayed. This was a posture of prayer. It was standing before the Lord with arms outstretched, with hearts bowed before Him, acknowledging the Creator of heaven and earth, the King of the world. So Ezra opens the book. He blesses the Lord and the people respond with lifted hands, Amen, Amen. And they bow their heads and they bow their hearts and they worship before the law, the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, we see that the law is read distinctly. It's what it says. Verse 8, so they read distinctly. And as they read, there were the Levites there explaining, helping to give the sense so that the people would understand what was being read. They read distinctly. They read in a most understandable way of speaking. Ezra was very sure to make sure that the people understood what was being read. They read distinctly. And the people were taught its meaning. The priests and the Levites helped the people understand the law as the people stood in their place. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. This is why on Sunday morning, what we call preaching or teaching, at least here, it will always include opening the book. It will always include reading from the book. It will always include an attempt to give the meaning and the understanding of what is being read and, and this is exactly what Ezra and the Levites did with the children of Israel. Because the reading of the law evoked, it, it evoked in the people repentance. It brought a response from the people. It evoked repentance and it also evoked rejoicing. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites teaching the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. It says in verse 9, For the people wept when they heard the words of the law. This is what the gospel is supposed to do. The gospel is supposed to bring us to a place, if we've not been broken, it is to break us. To bring us to repentance. If we have been broken, if we have been brought to repentance, we are God's children. We are new creations in Christ. The gospel should bring to us truth that changes us, that transforms us. The gospel should never leave us in the same place. The gospel will either save us or it will harden us. The same gospel that will save men and bring them to eternal life is the same gospel that will harden men who persist in their rejection of Christ. So that in the end, when all is said and done, those people that go to heaven because of the gospel will go there knowing that they are there by the grace of God. 
And those people who go to hell and experience the wrath and the judgment of God, they will go there because they rejected their only Savior and their only hope. The gospel never... The gospel is never ineffective, in other words. The gospel always works. The gospel doesn't just work when people accept Jesus. The gospel works when people don't accept Jesus. The gospel is affirming whatever path the person is on. If you're on the path to heaven right now, the gospel is going to affirm that and just cause you to rejoice. It's going to cause you to be broken before the Lord and understand that it's only by His grace that you have experienced His love and His mercy. If you are in rejection of Christ, the gospel is just going to affirm that. It is just going to make you more hard. And God will be justified when He gives people heaven and when He gives people hell. So the gospel didn't work sometimes and didn't work other times. The gospel always works. It always works. It can't do anything but work. I pray and I hope that what it's worked in you is eternal life. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. The gospel will break your hard heart and bring you to a place of repentance. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we teach the gospel. Because it is the gospel that is able to break through the hardness of your heart and bring you to repentance and usher you into eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So as Ezra read the book of the law, as Ezra read the word of God, the people were cut. They were broken. And they began to wept. They began to weep. And Nehemiah and, and Ezra and the Levites says, don't, don't mourn. This is, this is a holy day. But rather rejoice. Do not sorrow. So go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, those poor, those who have nothing, go and share. Share with them so that the whole nation can experience this rejoicing. For this day is holy to your Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the face of our sinfulness, guess what? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Do we have reason to sorrow? Yes. Did Israel have reason to sorrow and, and to weep because of their sinfulness? Yes, they did. But what was Nehemiah and Ezra, what were they saying? They were saying, this is not the time to mourn and weep. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, the law reflects this. But we are celebrating what we are celebrating, the greatness and the grace of God. Because God has brought us back. He's put us back in the land. He's put us back in our city. He has reestablished us. He has done this in His grace. We are products of God's grace. So he says, this is a time to rejoice. This is a time to celebrate God's grace. 
So he sent the people away with rejoicing. And it says, the people went their way rejoicing because they understood the words read to them. They were rejoicing in the truth. It reminds me of what Jesus said. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's not that I don't believe I'm a sinner anymore. I am. But I now understand something greater. I understand that God's love and God's grace is greater than my sin. And by the grace of God, He has set me free. He has delivered me, not because of me, but in spite of me. He has done that because of Jesus. And so this is what Ezra and Nehemiah are saying to the people. This is a celebration of God's grace. Yes, the law reveals what we deserve, but God has not given us what we deserve. Celebrate His grace. Verse 13 through 17, the people gathered the second day, the scripture says, in order, it says they gathered in order to understand the words of the law. So after that first day, they came back the second day and they had a hunger, a desire to understand what God was saying in his word. They wanted to understand what God was showing them, what God was instructing them in his word. And they found written that the Lord commanded that all the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Most believe that Jesus was born more than likely if the feast follow, if they are a messianic calendar, and I believe that they are, that Jesus was born on Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. He was born in the fall of the month. Tabernacles celebrates the time when God will come and dwell among His people. This is what this feast represents. These feasts were given to Israel as they came out of Egypt, as God gave the law to Moses. This was part of the law that God gave to Moses. And so the 15th of the seventh month began the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a seven-day feast, and it was a joyful feast. And as part of this, they were to go and cut branches and build these booths where they would be able to lay in them at night and be able to see the stars, and it was to remind them of how God took them out of Egypt and, and was with them as they wandered through the wilderness, that God was with them. Remember, God was there by day in a pillar of cloud, and He was there by night in a pillar of fire. God went with Israel through the wilderness. He, he was with them. And so this feast was to commemorate that reality that God is with us. Remember at Christmas, we read the Scripture, the prophecy, Unto you a child is born. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So it was prophesied of old. It was pictured in the Feast of Tabernacle and all the feasts of Israel. And so this is that feast when they are coming together and they're living in booths. And so they've come to Jerusalem. Tabernacles was one of three feasts where every male was commanded to come to Jerusalem and appear before the Lord. So what would they do? They'd bring their families the men would come and they'd bring their families. And so Feast of Tabernacles was one of those feasts where everyone would pile into Jerusalem. 
And so it says here that they built these booths. If you lived in Jerusalem, you put it on top of your house. But for all those people that lived in other cities, they'd put them in the public squares. They'd put them in the street. They'd put them anywhere they could. And they had booths built all over the city. And they were keeping this feast of the seventh month. So the people obeyed and they went out and they brought the materials and they made themselves booths and they placed them all over as needed and they sat under them, the Bible says. And the whole assembly made these booths and it says, since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. Now that's amazing. When Joshua died, things changed. Israel stayed faithful to God and you can go back and you read it. When Joshua died though, Israel began to fall away. And we go into the period of the judges. Eventually that leads to the first king, Saul, and then Israel had problems. And it says that from that time, from the days of Joshua, Israel had not celebrated the Feast of Tabernacle as it was celebrated that day. And it says there was very great gladness. And then verse 18, it says, day by day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. So they're there seven days, and every day Ezra is there in the square in front of the water gate, and he is reading from the book of the law, and they are teaching as they're reading, and they're explaining and giving the sense so that the people will hear and understand. And what was the point of them hearing and understanding? Well, it was so that they would obey that's how they came to celebrate the feast, because they read it in the account of the law, and they said, oh, God says we're to do this. Let's do it. So they went out, and they went to the mountains, and they cut branches, and they brought them back in, and they built booths. And every day, Ezra would come, and he would read the, from the book of the law. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly. Remember, seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. The eighth day wasn't part of the feast. The eighth day was the first day after the feast. And that first day after the feast was a day of solemn beginning. I don't have time to do it now, but we could go into the book of John. And I would just encourage you, if you read John chapter 7, chapter 8, you'll see when Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. He says that during the Feast of Tabernacles. When he says, I am... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his, his belly will flow rivers of living water. He said that during the Feast of Tabernacles, during a particular part where they, it's called the water drawing ceremony. What was Jesus doing? He was standing there in the midst of the temple at the celebration of this feast, and he was saying, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the fulfillment of what you've been doing. <coughs> if you thirst, come to me. Why? Because I am the fulfillment. I am the living water of life. So we see the feasts are fulfilled in Jesus. All of the feasts are fulfilled in Jesus. So they kept the feast. They read the book day by day. So chapter 8 here gives us this account of this newly returned nation celebrating in Jerusalem. It's a people returned from captivity they were exiled, remember, because of their sin and because of their rebellion. But now they are worshiping the Lord in obedience to His Word. It pictures for us a renewal of faith and true worship produced through the revelation brought by God's Word. This is why it's so important that I don't get up and try to give you my opinion, but I get up and I do the best I can to give you what the Scripture says. Because my opinion won't change 
anything. Even if it changed your mind, it will benefit you nothing. But if you will allow this word, this scripture, this truth to have entrance into your heart, if you will embrace it, if you will develop a hunger and a thirst for it, if you will acquire a taste for it, if you will begin to find your deepest joy in this and allow it to bring a revelation of who Christ is, of who God the Father is, of who you are in them, it will produce in you something that, that is unbelievable, that, that money can't buy, that the world can't take away from you. Even if they took your life, they couldn't take from you what God is able to give you through His truth and through His Word. And so it brought this revelation to the people of Israel that produced an obedience in them. And it brought a brokenness of heart to the people. And the law did what the law is meant to do. The law revealed their sin and their need for a Savior. That's what the law does. And out of that revelation of our need, then we begin to see God for who He truly is and we see ourselves for who we truly are, and we say, you know what? I, I, I need a Savior because I can't save myself. It was a time to mourn their sin, but it was even more a time to celebrate God's greatness and God's grace. God restored His people, and in restoring His people, God demonstrated His faithfulness. His faithfulness to His covenant, just as God desires to demonstrate his faithfulness to you. Israel could have lost faith. Seventy years of exile. The temple torn down. The city torn down. The wall torn down. There's a lot of reason there to lose hope and to lose faith. To be taken to captivity, to die in captivity. To be born in captivity and wonder whether you will ever go to that place that my father, my grandfather, my uncles talk about. A place I don't think I will ever see. But yet there was faith. And there was faithfulness. There wasn't faithfulness on Israel's part. There was faithfulness on God's part. And God, in His faithfulness, carried them back and brought them into the promise. God, in His faithfulness, will bring you into His promise. Thus the command not to mourn, but to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy for us and in us is our strength. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the joy set before him. You are that joy. He redeemed you. He redeemed his people. He endured the joy that was set he endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him. He says in John 15, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. His joy in us is to remain and his joy in us is to be full. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's God's joy in you and it is your joy in him that is your strength. This is the celebration of God dwelling among His people, this Feast of Booths. That is a reality now. Paul writes in Colossians 1.26, Christ in you. He said, this is the mystery revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is not someone that's coming to be with us one day. Jesus 
is with you now. You're not going to go to Him one day. You're not separated from Him now. The Bible says you are one with Him now. He came, and He will never leave you or forsake you. Just because He's physically in heaven doesn't mean He's not with you. He is absolutely with you. He lives in you, and you live in Him if you are His child. He is God with you. He is the fulfillment of tabernacles. He is the God dwelling in your midst right now if what the Bible teaches is true. If He dwells in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why we have hope. Because Christ dwells in us. This is how we can be accepted by the Father. Because Christ dwells in us. Because the Father is not accepting us. He's accepting Christ who is in us. And Christ brings us into the presence of the Father by His grace. God works to bring a transformation of His people. And that transformation will bring a transformation of his church, this church, all churches, it will bring a transformation of a nation, just like God affected in Israel. We gather because God is the great God bringing about His great plan and His great purposes in His people. And He's doing that in all things, all things bitter and all things sweet, all things glorious and all things less than glorious in the way we see them. Gathering together was a command that was kept in faith with great joy. We must never forget we gather because we are God's people. That's why we're here today. We're here because we're God's people. Nehemiah chapter 8 pictures for us the gathering of God's people. Why did the people gather? Because of God. Why are we here today? Because of God. You might have needs. You might have personal needs. You might come here because you've got a need and you need God to meet your need. That's, that's, that's great. Because ultimately we need to look to God to have our needs met. But we've got to come here for a greater reason than because of our need. We must come here because of who God is. And when we begin to see and comprehend and understand who God is, all of that about our need and all that will fit and fall into its proper place. Our greatest need is the need of a Savior. Our greatest need is to be healed spiritually. Our greatest need is to be restored to God and brought back in relationship and union with Him. And that is what Christ has done. We gather together as God's people because God is God. We gather for God. We gather as a family before God. We gather as men, as women, as children. We gather to bless the Lord, to pray and worship and learn. We gather to hear God's Word clearly and to gain understanding in it. We gather to be moved to repentance. We gather to be, removed to, to be moved to joy we gather for His glory, that the response of the gospel, the response the gospel brings to our life, that, that evokes in our life, is to the glory of God, whether it's repentance and brokenness or great joy and rejoicing. 
and hopefully we will experience all of those. We gather to be moved to obedience out of our understanding. We gather to continue day by day. Verse 18 says they, day by day, they did this. We gather each week so that we can continue day by day to walk out our worship and the transformation that God is working in our lives. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, and even the more as we see the day approaching. We gather because we're God's people. We gather because of God. So I want to invite you now to come to the table. I want to invite you to come and celebrate the work that Christ has done. I want you to come and celebrate the work that Christ continues to do, that God is doing in your life even right now as His people. We come and we celebrate. We remember His death. We proclaim His life. We are reminded of His presence with us even until He comes again. If you've never trusted Jesus, I invite you to trust Him. And as you trust Him, come to the table, church. Here is my charge to you. Don't let your gathering together with God become a reluctant obligation. Don't let your gathering together with God's people be out of reluctance, but let it be out of joy. Seek God so that you're gathering together to hear and read and learn and pray and confess and worship will be with His joy. Then you will find His strength in your life becoming greater and greater and His transforming work in you becoming clearer and clearer. Do this, seek this, not only for joy but for glory. Gather together with joy for His glory. Let our gathering together be a witness to His glory in His church. May it transform you and may it transform us all. May it transform Christ's fellowship, our families, and our community. May it be for His glory. Amen. Amen. May the grace and the peace and the transforming power of God's joy fill your life and strengthen you for His glory. May that glory be revealed in His church, especially in Christ's fellowship. Amen.